In the last year and a half, with my family pulling me in one direction and work in another, I've always wished for unlimited time to find justice for Dory. This case keeps me up at night, filling up notebooks with notes and thoughts and to-do lists, talking myself through theories in my car. What I could accomplish, I thought, if I just had a few weeks to nail down everything in my head, to make all the phone calls I wanted to, to record every episode germinating in my brain. But that old maxim, that you should be careful what you wish for, is true. Because here we are in the sixth week of quarantine. I haven't left the house except to take walks, so it stands to reason I should have a lot of time on my hands. But for me at least, the opposite has been true. Before, I was able to juggle work and family life, and every once in a while, I managed to sneak in some time of my own. These days, it's been tough. It seems like every minute is packed to the gills making sure I get in my eight hours of work, that my kids are eating more than cookies and pudding, and that my house doesn't just descend into chaos. It's been hard to think about Doreen, and not just because the day gets away from me. The truth of the matter is, this story is just so goddamn sad. And in a world where life as we know it has been totally upended, I've been afraid to go down that rabbit hole. But you know I can't stay away. Doreen and I have so much unfinished business, and I am drawn back to her again and again as I see justice rendered in ice-cold cases all across the country. Just this past week, the sheriff's office in Sacramento, California solved the case of Robin Brooks, who was 20 years old when she'd been sexually assaulted and stabbed to death in her bedroom in 1980. Praise was heaped on sheriff's investigator Mickey Lynx, who got to make the phone call she'd been dreaming of for years. Robin's sister Maria was overjoyed to get the news and mused about writing a letter to her long-gone sister. I would explain and talk to her that I'm really happy she gets to have some peace. And for me too, Maria said. All of this will help bring closure. I always just say, I love her. In reading about these cases, which I do a lot these days, it's hard not to get swept up in the emotions of the families. One that struck me involved the disappearance and murder of three girls in Hartford, Connecticut's capital city, around the time Doreen went missing. On October 8, 1987, 13-year-old Mayra Cruz didn't return home from school, and her body was found a month later in the East Windsor Woods. In January 1988, 17-year-old Carmen Lopez was found sexually assaulted and strangled to death in a Hartford apartment. She was six months pregnant. Carmen's boyfriend was convicted of the crime and sentenced to life. In 2008, however, the Innocence Project successfully pushed to have the DNA in Carmen's case examined. That not only revealed that Carmen's boyfriend, who had served 20 years at that point, was innocent, but also that the same man was responsible for the killing of Carmen and Mayra. In December 2008, that man was charged with the murders of Mayra, Carmen, and a third girl, Rosa Valentine. Rosa, also known as Rosita and Coco, was 16 when she had last been seen on July 26, 1986, walking home from her job at Battison's Cleaners and accepting a ride from the suspected killer and his white Ford Mustang Cobra. According to the Charlie Project, she was 5'2", 115 pounds, and wearing a smock featuring the Battison's logo. She also had on blue jeans and white shoes, was carrying a black pocketbook with long straps, and had a silver chain with a unicorn charm around her neck. Unlike Mira and Carmen, Rose's body has never been found. 
In December 2008, the killer entered court to be charged with the murder of all three girls. Onlookers screamed, and Carmen's brother, Jose, tried to attack the suspect before being restrained. Carmen's cousin, Hector, told gathered journalists that the suspect wouldn't look at the family and didn't appear at all remorseful. I was angry that I couldn't get a hold of him myself for a couple of minutes, Hector said. This guy's a psychopath. The judge was forced to clear the courtroom, bringing in Hartford and state police for extra security and warning the onlookers who could not control themselves would be arrested. Three years later, in 2011, the killer was convicted and sentenced to life in prison without parole for Carmen's death. At the sentencing, the prosecutor begged the defendant to tell the court where Rosa Valentine was, but he wouldn't budge. Four years later, in 2015, the killer was found guilty in Mayra's murder and sentenced to life in prison. Norma Cruz, Mayra's mother, read her victim statement in Spanish. In reality, we will not have a final closing, but we will be able to live with more inner peace, she said. We will focus on a more peaceful today. A childhood friend of Mayra's, Matthew Oakes, spoke directly to her murderer. You no longer control us, he said. We are free of you. Rose's family gathered for that sentencing but saw no justice that day. Because a few weeks prior, the prosecution had nulled the charge in that case, conceding that, without a body, there wasn't enough evidence to prove him guilty. At the sentencing for Mayra's murder, Rose's sister Gudelia was allowed to give a statement and spoke directly to the man she believed had taken her sister. We wish one day you have the courage to tell us where you disposed of her body, she said. Outside the courtroom, Rose's brother Israel clutched her photo and sobbed. This creature took our sister, he cried. In the state of Connecticut, as is the case everywhere else, lots of creatures have taken lots of sisters in the last five decades. And that's why people like New Haven State's attorney Patrick Griffin and his senior assistant state's attorney, Seth Garbarski, do what they do. I don't even think it has anything to do with a punishment or jail or incarceration, Garbarski told the Yale News in January 2019. I think families just want to know who did this horrific thing and why they did this horrific thing. I think that's why we continue to investigate, to give these families some sense of justice and closure. Discussing how investigating a cold case differed from investigating a more recent one, Garbarski admitted it wasn't a very exact science. The primary function of a cold case unit is to look into cases that, for whatever reason, have been deemed to have gone unsolved. It's just to put on a new, fresh pair of eyes, Garbarski said. It could be a case that's two weeks old. It could be a case that's 20 years old. In Tolland, looking into the cases of Lisa Joy White, Deborah Spickler, and Janice Pocket, State's attorney Matthew Gudansky stressed that those fresh eyes also have to be detailed to a fault. The biggest task, Gudansky told the Hartford Current, was scanning each and every document and each and every box for all three girls. For Janice, Gudansky noted, there were 30 boxes full, and Debbie and Lisa had dozens of boxes each. The thing that keeps us all going on this is you don't know which sentence and which report is going to be the tip that leads to the discovery of one of these girls. So every line has to be read, Gdansky said. That's what drives us all. There are viable leads. Interviewed in 2016, Janice's younger sister Mary was comforted and optimistic. This is the most positive I've felt that a lot more is being done, so we might get some answers, said Mary. It's just good to know my sister hasn't been forgotten.
These days, it's hard for me to remember a day when I didn't know the name Doreen Jane Vincent. I carry her around with me, just like I know many of you do. But her family has been carrying her around for years, praying and grieving and waiting for answers. And in all that time, the Wallingford Police Department has amassed three banker's boxes on our girl. Her beautiful face has never been featured on any cold case playing card in just one of the state's four editions, and to this day, her story fails to make Patrick Griffin's list. In a state where the governor's office delegates up to $50,000 in reward money for information leading to arrests and convictions in cold cases, for each case, Doreen's name has never garnered one red cent. So why is that? What lends itself to the solvability factor? or to a prospective law enforcement action? What makes Doreen different from Mayra and Carmen and Rosa, or from Janice and Lisa and Deborah? At the end of the day, what makes people care? I'm Jessica fritz and this is Sticky Beak. This is episode 10, Cooking Eggs. Walk, softly children, walk. In the last episode, I played you audio of my August 2019 hearing before the Freedom of Information Commission and read you a bit of my September 2019 briefing on hearing Officer Ross's primary resulting question. Was William Wright, chief of the Wallingford Police Department, the proper witness to testify as to a prospective law enforcement action in Doreen's case? No, I wrote. Respectfully, complainants do not believe it is their role to identify the witness most competent to overcome the presumption in favor of disclosure and establish that the statutory exemption is satisfied. As Hearing Officer Ross observed during the August 15, 2019 hearing, law enforcement agencies seeking to rely on the exemption typically provide a witness from the state's attorney's office who testifies that the records sought are 1. to be used, 2 in a prospective law enforcement action, and three, that the disclosure of the records would prejudice that law enforcement action. In fact, Hearing Officer Ross stated on the record that it has been the state's attorney's office who has claimed the exemption in each and every case where she recalled it being applied and disclosure denied. By contrast, in this case, respondent, who was given due notice of the hearing and was represented by experienced counsel, did not offer the testimony of a representative from the state's attorney's office. Instead, it offered the testimony of Wallingford Police Chief William Wright, whose testimony made clear that there is no prospective law enforcement action, let alone that production of the records sought are to be used in any such action or that their disclosure would prejudice that action. Indeed, the reason that respondent did not offer the testimony of a prosecutor is clear. Simply put, There is no prosecutor to testify that the exemption has been satisfied. Respondent's answer nowhere asserted that there is a prospective law enforcement action, instead making multiple references to, quote, sensitive investigation work, the fact that it is, quote, engaged in pursuing active leads, and its investigation. While the exemption necessarily contemplates that investigations, whether open and active or not, are a necessary part of police work, 
the mere fact of a police investigation is not the key to securing the exemption. Instead, a prospective law enforcement action based on the investigation is required. In contrast, the respondents admit, through their answer and Chief Wright's testimony, that a highly attenuated set of circumstances must be realized before the state's attorney would even agree to accept the case for investigation, much less to initiate a law enforcement action. See Answer of the Respondents, Paragraph 3, indicating that the department is preparing to present the file to the Office of the State's Attorney's Cold Case Unit for assignment. If the unit accepts the case, the State's Attorney's staff and investigators will work with the department to investigate the case further. Moreover, Chief Wright testified that the State's Attorney's Office itself has not physically reviewed the file and has not even allowed respondent to present a summary of its work to date in attempting to have the cold case unit accept the case because, after 31 years of supposedly active investigation, the matter remains unripe for prosecution. Respondent seeks to rely on the exemption, not because there is a prospective law enforcement action, but because, as Chief Wright testified, he hopes there will be one. Finally, even if there were a prospective law enforcement action, Respondent offered no evidence that its entire file must be withheld from disclosure because every record is to be used in such action and that disclosure would prejudice that action. Chief Wright's only testimony in this vein was that disclosure could lead to some unidentified witnesses potentially changing their prior statements. It is unsurprising that Respondent was unable to offer supporting evidence given Chief Wright's admission that a records officer, unfamiliar with the matter at hand, was tasked with responding to the complainant's request, and that the respondent took only 24 hours to issue its denial. In fact, counsel for the respondent flatly rejected the suggestion that it could redact portions of the file which fall under the exemption, instead balking at producing any part of the file based on a vague and generalized claim that every single record in it is, quote, something in the context of a criminal investigation, unquote. Simply put, such a generalized, whitewashed approach flies in the face of the spirit of the statute. In sum, Respondent has fallen far short of overcoming the legal presumption in favor of disclosure, offering no evidence that the records sought are, one, to be used, two, in a prospective law enforcement action, and three, that disclosure of the records would prejudice that law enforcement action. If Respondent or its counsel believe that a representative of the state's attorney's office could or would have been willing to testify that these elements have been met, it was their duty to offer the testimony of such a witness at the August 15, 2019 hearing. Sticky Beaks, you've heard this part of my brief before. The subject of the case file sought by complainants, 12-year-old Doreen Jane Vincent, has been missing for over 31 years, I wrote. The agency which claims to have been actively investigating her disappearance for all this time but which has failed to make any arrest or convince a prosecutor to commence any action, should not be permitted now to profit from its own incompetence. It has failed or refused to solve the case and has now failed to establish its entitlement to an exemption from its statutory duty to disclose its files. It would be the ultimate injustice to Doreen for the police department, which has failed her for over three decades, to get a second bite at the apple and its attempt to withhold production of her files. Hearing Officer Ross received the party's briefs on the subject, but continued to hold her cards close to her chest. 
On October 1, 2019, she ordered that the entire file be brought to her for her review, in camera, which is Latin for within her private chambers. Her order also required that the PD produce the log, which I felt was due under the statute, a log noting each piece of documentation withheld and citing the reason why it was exempt from production under the Freedom of Information statute. The log was due on October 22nd, but on October 17th, Town Attorney Janice Small requested another three days to comply. The extension is needed due to the size of the file, she wrote, staffing issues at the police department, and the need to convert cassette tapes and VHS to CDs. Further, given the age of some of the records, they cannot be copied in mass in a copier. The process is ongoing, and an extension to the end of the week should be sufficient to complete the submittal. Hearing Officer Ross granted the extension. Attorney Small emailed the commission again on October 24th with the following question, and surprised me. We will be providing the complainant with copies of several documents. Does the hearing officer want copies of or a list of what we disclose? Linda Fasciano, the commission's acting clerk, wrote back to tell us Officer Ross didn't need the disclosed documents, only those on which the PD claimed exemption. I received the log on October 25, 2019. It's 21 pages long and references 1,774 pages. So now let's do some quick math. According to Google, a standard size banker's box can fit 175 to 200 sheets per inch, or a total of about 3,600 sheets per box. For Doreen, that kind of volume just doesn't exist. So I imagine the rest of the space in the boxes is taken up by the audio and visual tapes of interviews Attorney Small referenced. In the log I received, the following interviews are listed without dates. Three each for Donna Jones and Sharon Vincent, Doreen's mother and stepmother, and two for her paternal grandmother, Lori Vincent. One each for Roseanne Poloni and two investigators, Rich Nesbitt of the New York State Police, and a man or woman named Clemens. Mark Vincent's name is listed three times. Spotted among these names are words like informant, confidential witness, and witness conversations. There are women and girls who are thought to be Doreen, women and girls whose names came up when the flyers went out in the 90s and tips flooded in. They were, of course, quickly determined to not be Doreen. And there's one remaining name, one that I will keep close to the vest for now who I can imagine can shed real light on this case today, if you're asking the right questions. This log is fascinating for many other reasons. First, recall that the police department is required, if it wants to be exempt from producing records under the Freedom of Information statute, to prove three things. First, it must show that a prospective law enforcement action exists. Secondly, it needs to indicate how each piece of information that is claimed to be protected will be used in that action. Finally, prejudice must be demonstrated. The department must indicate how production of each record to me or to the public in general would prejudice the state's case against anyone prosecuted for what happened to Doreen. In recording how each piece of the file was exempt, however, Attorney Small did no such thing. Connecticut General Statute 1210B3D, she pasted, over and over and over. That's just the site for the exemption. It's also interesting to see how the PD categorized the materials it claimed to be exempt. 
Many entries were extremely vague. Investigative records, many of the descriptors read. Investigative memo. Leads and information related thereto. Some entries were more specific, including that for Richard Novia's 57-page private investigative report. As you know, that report, heavily redacted, was provided to me. Interestingly, it's only in entries on the redaction to Novia's report that we see any language that would hint at any prosecution itself. Information for prospective prosecution, they read. Information for prospective prosecution re person of interest. Seeing this, I can't help but remember what's blanked out in my copy of Novia's report. His conversations with Mark Vincent about Doreen's diary and why he burned it. My timeline is there too. The one I worked up in March 2019 and gave to Chief Wright, Lieutenant Anthony DeMeo, and Lieutenant Jim Cifarelli when Joe and I met with them. The one they told me was the best, most comprehensive timeline they'd seen on the case to date. According to the log, the police had taken notes on the timeline which they argued I was not permitted to see. Defying logic, they were also refusing to produce my own timeline back to me, claiming it qualified as exempt. But what I was most interested in were the case reports. In speaking to a friend experienced in the processes of a police department and in responding to FOIA requests, I had learned that a supplemental report needed to be completed every time the police worked on a file. Back at the hearing in August 2019, I had asked Chief Wright about it. Um, and it's true that on any open case, you need to um, complete supplements, right? Supplemental reports as the investigation continues? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. Um, what are the legal requirements on putting a supplement together? How is that done? I don't know that there's a legal requirement. Our own in-house uh, policies require that a supplemental report be done in close proximity to the time that the action was taken. Okay. Um, and what would, can you give me some examples of what a supplement might include? Um, it could include um, a one or two line statement that, you know, you and I, as an example, had this discussion today. Okay. Or it might go on for 12 or 15 typed written pages. Okay. Do you know when the last supplemental report on this file was completed? I don't. Do you know when the last supplemental report before that was completed? Be before the, I, I guess I misunderstood. I guess, do you know when the last supplemental report on this case was prepared? Yeah, I don't. Okay. Um, would you include it in a supplement if you had spoken to a witness? Yes. Okay. Um, a past or present witness, right? Yes. Okay. So let's take a look at the log, shall we? In the log, supplemental case reports account for pages 534 to 624, and four more pages from 1005 to 1008. All told, that means there are 94 pages of supplemental reports on Doreen. But what's more interesting are the dates, especially since Chief Wright testified that the police had spoken to witnesses recently, and more specifically, in the year or so since Sarah Demio started faded out. June 19, 1988, is an easy one. Capturing the day Doreen was reported missing, that report is six pages long. June 22, 1988. June 25, 1988. July 6, 1988. One report, totaling three pages, is undated. July 16, 1988. And now here comes the jump, where just under one year will pass without any reports to be found. 
The next case report is dated July 4, 1989, with reports following on July 7, 10, 12, 13, 26th, 29th, and a final one that year on August 17th. Now another two years are unaccounted for, with the next report dated July 11, 1991, and the final case report on this file coming almost 20 years after its predecessor, and eight years ago, is dated November 16, 2011. It accounts for four pages in the file, comprising those document numbers 1005 to 1008. After 2011, there is nothing, not even from 2014, when Lieutenant DeMeo organized the file. To date, Hearing Officer Ross hasn't told me what she thought of my brief, where I argue that the PD had failed in its burden to prove, with or without a prosecutor, that Dorian's case would result in a prospective law enforcement action. On November 21, 2019, Commission Clerk Linda Fasciano sent a certified letter to the PD and me. When the notice arrived, I was at work, and our house, now filled to the brim with people every quarantine day and night, was empty. The next day I woke up and drove straight to the post office in my pajamas, signing for the letter as quickly as I could. I ripped the envelope open to see that the hearing had been reopened, Ms. Fasciano wrote, for the purpose of allowing the respondents to present additional evidence in support of their claim that the in-camera records are exempt from disclosure pursuant to Connecticut General Statutes 1210B3D. Specifically, the letter read, Hearing Officer Ross wanted further testimony from Chief Wright and or Detective Jakes regarding how disclosure of such records would be prejudicial to a specific law enforcement action. The words how and specific are underlined. The reopened hearing was set for December 19, 2019. Seven days before we were set to see each other again in that Hartford hearing room, on December 12, Town Attorney Small sent another email to the Commission, writing, I would like to submit this request to Hearing Officer Ross. If possible, I would like to view the in-camera documents we submitted to you in this case. I did not copy all of the documents with the page numbers written on them before the hearing. The department's file is not organized in the same manner as the submittal. Clerk Fasciano granted the request. Then the day arrived for our second hearing, and I was just about to head out to Hartford in a suit and full makeup when it was canceled due to flooding at the commission building. It seemed like a bad joke. Come on, a friend texted me when I told her. Are you picturing the Wallingford PD pouring water down the steps into the basement? I shared our laugh with another friend who wrote, I thought the same thing, though I pictured the WPD in the basement, wailing on the pipes with an axe. The hearing was postponed till February 3, 2020. The wait was extremely frustrating, so I tried to use my time wisely to eke out any more information that I could. Could you please, I emailed Attorney Small, provide dates for all the interviews conducted. My thinking was that a fuller story would emerge if I knew not just if the police had spoken to witnesses, but when. No dice. Attorney Small ignored my request. Given the delay since August, I asked, and Chief Wright's assurances that the investigation was extremely active, would the police provide me with an updated exemption log as to the work it had done between August 2019 and February 2020? No, Attorney Small responded, we will not. So here I was again, with time on my hands. I decided to use it to brush up on some other cold cases across the state, 
to see whether I could find any clues to help me in my fight to get Doreen's records and to push the right people to do the right thing. Billy Smolinski was one of the first names I googled. Billy was 31 in 2004 when he left his Waterbury home, never to be seen again. Billy had just broken up with his girlfriend, Madeline Gleason, who'd also been secretly seeing Woodbridge politician Chris Sorensen. Billy left a message on Sorensen's answering machine, telling him to watch his back, and then asked his neighbor to look after his dog while he went north to look at some cars. Rumors flew about how a love triangle had ended in tragedy, especially when a tip called into Crime Stoppers identified Sean Karpulik, Madeline's son, as the murderer. The tipster relayed that Sean, a former gravedigger who worked for a landscaping company, had strangled Billy to death in Madeline's apartment with the help of at least one other man. But Sean died of a drug overdose three months after Billy vanished, and despite the obvious leads, Billy has never been found and no one has ever been arrested. Unanswered questions like these leave gaping holes in people's lives, and those people get pissed off. Back when Billy disappeared, the police made his mother Jan wait three days to make an official report. Sound familiar? Jan and her family began to hang missing persons posters all over western Connecticut, advertising a $10,000 reward for any information about Billy. But as soon as she could hang them, Jan's posters were getting torn down. Sometimes Billy's face was slashed, and someone would scrawl across it in Sharpie, Who cares? Creating their own civilian surveillance squad, Billy's family soon saw it was Madeline, Billy's ex-girlfriend, who was responsible for the vandalism. Wasn't this enough, they asked? Couldn't something be done now? Apparently not. Jan was arrested in Woodbridge for harassing Madeline, who sued Jan for defamation. I was crushed, Jan told John Murray of the blog The Brass File. I always thought we could depend on the authorities and society to help us out, but the whole system completely failed us. If we weren't going through this, I wouldn't believe that this could all happen. We used to believe if someone got arrested, it meant they had done something wrong. We used to believe that if somebody was sued, they had done something wrong. Nothing makes sense anymore. I feel we are in an episode of The Twilight Zone. To add insult to injury, Waterbury Deputy Chief Jimmy Egan told a journalist in 2016, two years after Billy went missing, that Billy was, quote, probably having a beer somewhere in Europe. It reminded me of that officer who had first responded in Doreen's case, musing a year later that Doreen was a little slut who was probably banging someone and ran away. In 2016, journalist Andy Thibault requested copies of the Waterbury PD's file on Smolinski. Days later, the matter was transferred to the FBI's New Haven office after the police wrote requesting their help on the case. The news made the Smolinskis, who had long asked the FBI for help, cautiously optimistic. We've been crying for help for two years, and almost everybody has pushed us aside, Jan said then. Having the FBI take a look at Billy's case is a breath of fresh air. Maybe they are the answer to the chaos we've been dealing with. Some observers were more pessimistic, wondering if this was just a bureaucratic sleight of hand to keep the file secret. They obviously don't want you to know what they know, or how little they actually worked on the case, a reader commented to the Cool Justice Report. Today, 14 years after the FBI took up the charge, Billy's mother hasn't gotten the answer she's looking for. We believed that we lived in a society where every case is solved within 60 minutes, just like on CSI every week, Jan said. But what we've discovered, and what thousands of families are dealing with every day, 
is that training in police departments across the country has not kept pace with science. We are not giving up until we bring Billy home, said Billy's father, Bill. The police keep saying we are bashing them, but we're not. We are just trying to find our son. Since then, Jan and Bill haven't taken a break. Traveling the Connecticut highways, you will see billboards featuring Billy's face alongside the stark message, Murdered and Missing, $60,000 reward. The billboards feature a tip line and a website, justiceforbilly.com, with the number four filling in for the preposition. The website dedicated to the search for Billy features the phrase, look up, not down, ahead, never back, each day, a small step forward. But the Smolinskis also pushed for social change, successfully advocating for a state law requiring police officers to immediately file a missing persons report upon request and to report all disappearances to a national database. This, in effect, sidestepped Connecticut's decentralized reporting system that relies on local, state, and federal agencies within the state to figure out who was responsible for what. Jan and Bill are also still fighting for Billy's Law, a federal bill which would link the FBI's National Crime Information Center to the National Missing and Unidentified Person System, or NamUs. That step, the family thinks, would give officials a greater chance at linking thousands of unidentified remains with open cold cases through DNA. It would be huge, Jan said. They would get answers. Some missing would be brought home, and they could hug their loved ones again. Others, like my family and I, we could put him to rest and know that, you know, he's not hidden somewhere in a frozen ground. I think that's huge, she said. Not knowing where her son rests? Haunts Billy's mother who grows angry when she considers the unanswered questions regarding her son. Criminals know if they get rid of a body, police take the thought of, no body, no case, she said. The problem facing investigators in Billy and Doreen's case, that of no body, has never been an issue in the mystery of who killed Suzanne Joven. Suzanne was 21 and a senior at Yale University in New Haven on the night of December 4, 1988 when she was found about two miles from campus with a slit throat and 17 stab wounds. She was lying on her stomach, feet in the road, body on the grassy area between the road and the sidewalk. She was fully clothed, with a crumpled dollar bill but no wallet in her pocket, and still wearing her watch and earrings. Her killer has never been found, and it hasn't been from lack of trying. Through careful police work, Investigators were able to account for almost every minute of Suzanne's last day on Earth. At 4.15 that afternoon, she had dropped off an essay on Osama bin Laden and headed to a pizza party for Best Buddies, a charity she had organized to bring together students and mentally disabled adults. When the party ended around 8.30, she cleaned up and drove another volunteer home, arriving back at her apartment around quarter to nine. A few friends passed Suzanne's window around 8.50 and tried to persuade her to see a movie, but Suzanne passed up a night out in favor of studying. She logged onto her Yale email account at 9.02 and told a friend that she was going to collect some GRE books from someone who had borrowed them and would leave them in the lobby of her building. Suzanne provided the access code for her door but didn't identify the person to whom she'd lent the books, and whoever it was, they have never been identified. She logged off eight minutes later and headed to the campus's communication center to return the keys from the car she'd used to get to the party. She bumped into a classmate who was out for a walk. 
Suzanne, the classmate, would tell police, had sheets of white paper in her hand, and it said she was tired and looking forward to getting some sleep. After she returned the keys at 9.25 p.m., Suzanne was seen by another Yale student returning from a hockey game, walking along College Street. 30 minutes later, at 9.55, a passerby dialed 911 to report a woman bleeding, and Suzanne was pronounced dead at 10.26 p.m. In 2006, Suzanne's case was officially classified as cold and moved to the state cold case unit. The unit's website, however, failed to mention both Suzanne and the $150,000 reward that the state and Yale were offering for information on her murder. In 2007, the assistant state's attorney admitted that the state had secretly handed Suzanne's case back to the New Haven PD to be reviewed by a hand-picked team of four retired detectives. Today, the cold case page reads as follows. The team and the division are asking for a renewed commitment by the public to assist in solving the homicide of Suzanne Jovin. We are interested in all available information or leads, no matter how remote or trivial that might seem. We want to hear from anyone who has heard something, seen something, or who may even have repressed the knowledge of something that could be related to the murder of Miss Jovin. Do not assume that someone else has already provided the information. Even if you have already made a call in response to previous requests for information, you should call again so that the team may follow every possible lead. This is directly contrary to the approach recently taken by the Wallingford police, that they won't re-interview witnesses, even someone like Doreen's Aunt Debbie who wants to talk, because their new recollection might taint their old one. Digging into cold cases across the state, I read about investigators who wholeheartedly reject that approach. In looking into the Stanford case of Rhonda Johnson, an 18-year-old who was shot to death with her six-month-old baby boy in 1996, I found Kara O'Connor's 2012 interview with Stanford Police Sergeant Anthony Lupinacci. The guys who originally investigated this worked around the clock and gathered a lot of physical evidence and a pretty solid lead on a suspect, Lupinacci said. Now that time has passed, people's attitudes may have changed against the suspects. Friends may no longer be friends anymore. People may also have a different view on the case because maybe they have families of their own now. We have witnesses willing to speak on this case years ago, and my guess is that they will probably still testify today. Investigating the 1995 dragging death of Leah Ulbrich, literally from Hartford into its neighboring town of Wethersfield, Hartford Police Detective Jude Jacobson echoed Lupinacci's point. The only way we can solve a cold case is to talk to people, Jacobson said. Tech is awesome, but you're never going to be able to solve a case unless you talk to somebody. Suzanne Joven's murder has never been solved, and the fight to find out why started early. In 2002, an investigative team hired by a suspect in her killing convinced the Freedom of Information Commission to unanimously vote to release the 4,500 pages of documents amassed in the investigation to date. Take note of that number. I'm certainly not taking away that the crime in Joven's case was more readily apparent than that in Doreen's. But in the four years after Suzanne's murder, the New Haven Police Department had 4,500 pages, almost three times as many as Doreen has today, after 32. Either way, the New Haven PD appealed the record's release, and they did not see the light of day. Another push for the records in 2011 was unsuccessful, 
a third stab at FOIA was made by two filmmakers in 2017. Contrary to what happened at Doreen's hearing last August, the police put not only New Haven police officers, but also a forensic examiner and assistant state's attorney, Marcia Pillsbury, on the stand. While attorney Pillsbury refused to say how many investigators were working on the case, whether she had interviewed any witnesses, or whether she thought there would be a prosecution in the next six months, she did note that definite steps were being taken to further the investigation. Specifically, the police were attempting to use touch DNA from Suzanne's clothing to identify her assailant. They were traveling across the country to re-interview witnesses, both old and brand new. They had hired a hypnotist to investigate the classmate who had seen Suzanne walking down College Street, and they had brought in the FBI. Given the strength of the state's case in Suzanne's hearing, the officer denied the third FOIA request in September 2017, writing as follows, It is found that a prospective law enforcement action is a reasonable possibility. The respondent's witness emphasized that, in their opinion, disclosure of the records would prejudice a prospective prosecution of Jovin's killer. In particular, they testified, and it is found, that disclosure could make it difficult to verify and corroborate future witness statements and evidence, to develop new evidence, and would overall weaken the integrity of the investigation and the respondent's control of the investigation. Assistant State's Attorney Marsha Pillsbury testified, in particular, that the passage of time has not reduced the sensitivity of the information contained in the records. Both she and the other respondents' witnesses testified that, until a perpetrator is identified, nothing in their file should be disclosed to the public, because seemingly innocuous evidence could become critical to corroborate or refute new leads as they arise. Barbara Hamburg is another cold case victim whose story I have my eye on, and I'm not the only one. On March 3, 2010, Barbara was found dead from blunt and sharp force injuries outside her home in Madison. She was 48. Barbara's case has never been solved, and she features as the Queen of Diamonds in the State Cold Case Unit's fourth series of playing cards. At a memorial service for Barbara on the 10th anniversary of her death, just this past February, Barbara's son Madison, now 28, was plain in his grief for his mother. When you first died, I used to call your phone, just so I could hear your voice in the voicemail, he said. I would leave you messages, even though I know you could not hear them. Every so often something triggers me to remember that it's all real. I'll see a mother and son getting ice cream together, or see my friend's mothers watch them get married and have kids. My life will never be normal. I will never have that with you. Madison ended his thoughts with a plea. A message to the killer, he said, if you are out there. You must be living with such a weight. I feel sorry for what you must be carrying. I beg you to tell us why. It's the question that I will have for the rest of my life. And maybe the question is much deeper than a solution to the problem. Maybe it was a terrible mistake. Why not relieve yourself? This past October, Madison, a documentary filmmaker, teamed with Aniki Nymeyer of Eastward Pictures to file a FOIA request against the local police for records on Barbara's case. Barbara Hamburg's homicide has remained unsolved for nearly a decade and it is the subject of a forthcoming documentary project directed by her son, Madison Hamburg. Disclosure of records will benefit the public because her unsolved homicide is of continuing concern to the public, Nymeyer wrote. The response Hamburg and Nymeyer received was not unlike the pushback in Doreen's case. 
There's information contained in those files that only the perpetrator of this crime would know, the state said. If we presented that information and it got out into the public, it allows for suspects, perpetrators, to create alibis. The police sent a second letter to Neumeyer in December 2019, emphasizing that the case was ongoing, and said that the investigation had been, quote, sealed by the Connecticut Supreme Court at the request of New Haven Chief State's Attorney Patrick Griffin, unquote. But when Megan Friedman of the New Haven Register pushed, she found no such sealing had taken place, although the medical examiner's autopsy report had been sealed. The case itself had not. Which leads me to ask, if State's Attorney Griffin isn't involved in the Barbara Hamburg case, then why were the Madison police acting like he was? The hearing on Barbara's file was held at the Freedom of Information Commission on February 19, 2020, two weeks after ours. And as with ours, Hamburg and Neumeyer await a decision. So let's talk about that second hearing, which happened less than three months ago but feels eons away. This time the cast was a bit different. Chief Wright was still there but didn't testify. To do that, he brought along with him Detective Michael Colavolpe, the head of Wallingford's detective division. It was the first time Joe or I had seen or heard from Colavolpe since he told Sarah Demio that the case was with Lieutenant DeMeo of the Traffic Division, all the way back in December 2018. I thought the third man was Mike Forenza, until a friend of mine whispered she has seen his nameplate, and it was Detective Stephen Jakes. Like Lieutenant Jim Cifarelli at the August 2019 hearing, Detective Jakes was sworn in, but remained silent as a stone. At the beginning, Colavolpe's testimony went as anticipated. The police, he said, were concerned that releasing the records would negatively affect witness testimony. I have just a few questions. So, um, if I understand your testimony correctly, with respect um, to basically the file as a whole, I know that you, you addressed each specific category of, of records, but it seems to me that your testimony is that um, this is an active ongoing investigation that, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems to me that there is a reasonable possibility that there will be an arrest in the next year, and if those are not your words, please correct me. I, I can't say for sure there's going to be an arrest. Um, that's ultimately up to a prosecutor and a judge. I could assure you I will be submitting an arrest warrant. Okay, fair enough. Year. Okay. Um, and then just to continue, um, additionally, your concern with disclosure of the information generally is, is um, tainting the witnesses. So as I understand that, it's, if the case were to go to trial, the prosecutor would need to be able to know that that witness's recollection was pure, meaning they're remembering the events from the time that it happened versus, well, the police disclosed a video and maybe that witness saw the video or maybe one of his friends saw the video and said, hey, didn't you witness that? And so it confuses the recollection. So to keep the witnesses pure, one way to do that is to not disclose any information. Is that correct? Is that your testimony? Um, and you also seem to um, talk about original witness statements. Your concern with disclosure of original witness statements is sort of for the same reason. They're, if you disclose them, then they're 
recollection is no longer pure. Is that correct? That is correct. And do you have concern at this point that um, other witnesses may become important whose information may not be in your file at this time um, and that their testimony could be influenced? They were also worried that the person responsible for Doreen's disappearance could use the information in the files to fabricate an alibi, even over three decades later. Couldn't that happen in any cold case, I asked? He admitted I was right. But there were more bombshells to come. After 32 years, Colavolpe told me, Doreen was no longer classified as a runaway, but as a homicide victim. I can still hear the stunned gasp behind me in the hearing room. Who had made that determination, I asked. State's Attorney Griffin, Colavolpe said. So the state's attorney had taken the case, Officer Ross asked? Not exactly. Here's that exchange. Has a member, has a volunteer member of the cold case unit and was working with the state's attorney, state's attorney's cold case unit, right? And that um, one of the cases was this case, um, this disappearance case. And that the state's attorney's office told the Wallingford Police Department that if some further investigation was undertaken, they would consider providing your police department with additional resources? Does, does that, am I saying that correctly? So, kind of. Um, so we made a presentation to the co-cation unit, and the co-cation unit is for all of New Haven County. Um, so you can imagine there's a lot of members on from the New Haven Police Department and the Police Department um, that have a lot, there's a lot of cold cases out there, per se. Um, so we made a presentation to them. The state's attorney came back and said, um, here's some things I want you to follow through with. Um, and then we'll see where it stands from there. After giving us some guidance on what to do, I feel that my unit um, could handle these ourselves without having to go back to the cold case unit. Um, and if we could handle them in-house and I have the ability with the detectives that I have assigned to me to do that, then I would rather keep it in-house then give it to the cold case squad, which is made up of members from the departments throughout New Haven County. I see. Okay, thank you for that. Yeah, you heard right. After not being able to make its full PowerPoint presentation to the New Haven cold case unit, and after being instructed as to what to do to strengthen its case, to the point the cold case unit would take it, the Wallingford police, quote, took it back. Because they can handle it in-house, they say. And Cola Volpe had more news. They hope to apply for an arrest warrant for a suspect soon, he said. When, I asked. Colo Volpe didn't know. In a week? A month, I asked. A year? Two? Five? Hopefully within a year, was the answer. So there you have it. Despite what the Meriden Wallingford Record Journal reported, we don't know if an arrest is coming within a year. We don't even know if the warrant for the arrest will be applied for within a year. Like so many things when it comes to Doreen, this was just the Wallingford Police Department's best guess. After all this news, I was reeling, but there was one more reveal coming. The Wallingford PD had gone through the file again, town attorney Small said, and had called out some, quote, dead leads that it would give me. Again, I need to stress this. I made my request on May 30th, 2019, and it was denied a day later in its entirety, with no log or any record as to what I might be missing. After the hearing in August 2019, when the PD was ordered to give its file to hearing officer Ross in camera, 
I received a bunch of documents that suddenly weren't exempt, like Richard Novia's file. Now, in February 2020, I was to receive even more documents, leads that were dead in the water and would have nothing to do with any prosecution of any suspect, no matter when that occurred. It's unfortunate, I told Laurent Decorus of the Record Journal, that it's taken so long for the police to winnow out the wheat from the chaff, especially given the transparency requirements of the statute and the fact that my complaint is almost six months old at this point. There is more to this FOIA saga, but let's put that aside for now. As for the dead leads, I have discussed those in earlier episodes, but some of them bear repeating now. Like the potential grave that the landowners discovered at Whirlwind Hill Road in April 1989, when men from the neighborhood told police Mark Vincent had been acting suspicious and bizarre. I will never forget the 1988 memo, where Steve sent Detective Cameron out to rescue Doreen from a supposed pimp, because Steve himself couldn't even get the phone number to the place. Happy hunting, Steve wrote with his maddening exclamation points. And what about the 1993 memo indicating that Wallingford officer Carrie Coon knew Doreen was likely dead and buried at the hands of her father? You guys remember Coon. He was fired in 1997 after he picked up a Meriden sex worker and drove her back and forth to a crack house. But even before that, Kuhn was a questionable character on the Wallingford Police Force. In 1996, a woman was kidnapped by her ex-boyfriend during her dinner break from the Route 5 Walmart. He held a gun on her and drove her around for three hours. A hostage negotiator ultimately got the ex-boyfriend to give up his victim, but not before calling in Kuhn, who knew the bad guy personally and professionally. And let's also talk about Richard Novia's report, which I've had since October, but is stunning in what it reveals. When Donna hired Novia on July 7, 1988, she spilled her guts about Mark Vincent's criminal background, about his sexual abuse of her sisters, and his burning of Doreen's diary. Looking at Novia's report, I can't imagine Doreen didn't tell the police the same thing. But for over a year, and then for 30 years more, Doreen was classified as a runaway. So what did the police do? These days, I think it's more on point to start with the things they didn't. Donna and her sisters were disregarded, and still continue to be. The three decades worth of records I have reveal no interview of Frank IML, Mark's boss, or of Jimmy Farnham or Laura West, Mark and Sharon's landlords. In fact, the police still have not taken me up on my offer to give them Laura West's audio from over two hours of interviews. Jane Murad, Doreen's maternal grandmother, was never interviewed. The house was not searched until 1989, and it remains questionable whether the adjoining acreage owned by Jimmy Farnham's in-laws, Robert and Nancy Charles, was ever gone over. Doreen's teacher, Tom Pannone, came to me with not only a disturbing story about Doreen masturbating in class, but with word that the police had asked him to gather Doreen's educational records. Before Sarah, Joe, and I got involved, the police had not interviewed one of Mark Vincent's four siblings, one of whom was in the house with his mother, Lori, in July 1989, when the police found the gun. And let's not forget about Brad, to whom Mark fled for almost a year after Doreen went missing. Let's also not forget the leads of mine that the PD are following up on as we speak. It was only after my episode detailing how Roseanne Poloni was a force of nature that the police went to speak to her family and only after I revealed Mark's solitary walk in the woods at his father's memorial service that the police tried to retrace those steps in Huntington State Park. 
It's so frustrating. How can we have a prospective law enforcement action on these bones? How can we have a solvability factor? What's it going to take to get justice for Dory? Sitting here, having spoken to dozens of people with their own stories to tell, I think I know the answer. Overlooking the road where Leah Albrecht was dragged to death, only to be identified by her tattoos, Lieutenant Paul Cicero, the head of the Hartford Major Crimes Division, said this, It's just going to take that one little thing that's just going to... And he snapped his fingers. You might get that guy who's just going to be sitting at his coffee table or cooking his eggs in the morning going, Maybe it's time. Someone who knows what happened saying, You know what? They're still working on this thing. And I'm going to tell my story. Reading this quotation, I couldn't help but remember something Kate, Doreen's seventh grade friend from Westwood's Academy, told me. For years, I would periodically say, gosh, whatever happened to Doreen? And it's funny because just back in January, like over the Christmas break, my husband and I were having breakfast in a breakfast restaurant somewhere. And I saw someone that looked like Doreen. And I remember saying to my husband, you know what, she reminds me of my friend who went missing. And I was telling him all about her and the stories that she used to tell us. And I said, God, I wonder what happened to her. And I got on my phone and I Googled. And I came across an article about your podcast. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh my God, mm -hmm. they're doing some kind of investigation. I said, maybe I should call them. And then I thought, you know what? No, I'm not going to stick my nose into something. And I said, no. And They'll call me eventually. <laughs> no, I just figured, you know what? No, I mean, that's what I've been I, doing, right? I bookmarked it on my phone, and I just, and that was back in January. Mm -hmm. And then I got this email from you like two weeks ago, and I swear I almost fell out of my chair because I was yeah. thinking, all right, that's kind of a sign because yeah. here I was thinking about reaching out to you guys. And, and it turns out Kate isn't the only one because just a couple of weeks ago, I got a message from a woman I'll call Lynn after Janie's best friend in one of my favorite movies from childhood, Girls Just Want to Have Fun. I was friends with Doreen Vincent in fourth grade, Lynn wrote. We spent time together out of school. I'm not super comfortable communicating like this, but I think I should probably talk to you. My friend actually asked me about her and told me about you. I don't think I have anything to donate to the investigation that is new, but maybe my experiences can confirm some suspicions. I don't mean to be cryptic. I'm just really not comfortable writing about this. I attached our fourth grade picture from Carrington Elementary School. She lived in Bunker Hill Arms Apartments then. Obviously, you can see where Doreen is. Sticky Beaks, it's late, and I have already unloaded about 80% of my heart and brain into this episode for tonight. I want to eat some pizza and watch Onward with my kids and put them to bed and not think about Lynn's story. When you hear it, just like me, you'll wish you hadn't. But it's a fact of this case, a part of who Doreen was, and maybe holds the key to some sort of resolution here. The police should be listening too, and if they care, they should give me a call. I will tell you all about it, but I need to sit with it for a while. Let it breathe. Just like in all of these cold cases, Lynn's story makes me wonder who's out there. Cooking eggs. Having brunch and thinking about Doreen. Are you sitting phone in hand, wondering if you should take your extra time to call me? Sticky Beaks, you know my answer. Please stay safe and happy and well. Thank you as always for your support in my quest to find justice for Doreen.